Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking about a subject today that resonates across Indian country and beyond. It is a topic that, yes, has been focused on among indigenous peoples, but it's a topic that cuts across racial and ethnic lines. It actually is the topic dealing with violence. And because of the sensitive nature of this topic... I want to encourage you, if you've got younger listeners, to uh, use special discretion in the material that follows. It's life-changing material. I want to encourage our mature listeners to stay by because I've got a great guest. His name is Buck Blodgett. Buck, it's so great to have you with me on today's edition of American Indian Living. Well, it's really great to be with you, David, and thanks so much for having me on. Let me share Jessie and her story. Buck, we are launching into a discussion that is not the typical discussion that health professionals have with their patients. You've been a chiropractor for many years. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I've been a chiropractor for 21 years in a family practice in Wisconsin. We um, treat everybody from newborn babies to uh, the elderly. You know, they told us in school 24 years ago, David, that people are going to lay down on your table and they're going to start talking and you're kind of half chiropractor and half psychiatrist. Mm. And, of course, I'm not. That's not my formal training. But um, it's really at the heart and soul of healing is what goes on inside of us. And a lot of us have suffered violence in different forms, emotional or physical or sexual or whatnot, like my family did three and a half years ago. And, um, you know, it's important to deal with it in ways that bring healing, um, not disease. Well, and you know exactly where we're going with the show, but our listeners are kind of scratching their heads a little bit. But we're talking about a topic that has been grabbing headlines, but it's a topic that has really been front and center in First Nation communities for decades, centuries, and that is uh, violence. Uh, you brought this into focus in a very, very poignant way in your own life, not by your choice, but tell us a little bit about your story and why you've become so passionate about preventing violence. Well, on July 15th of 2013, on a Monday morning at about 9 a.m., while my wife and I were at work, uh, my daughter, my 19-year-old daughter, Jessie, was home alone, sleeping, and a friend came in our house, and um, in a long-planned attack, he surprised Jess in her sleep. He hogtied her, he uh, put a gag ball in her mouth, and he raped her, and then he pulled out a rope and um, put it around her neck, and he pulled with all his strength for at least a minute, and, uh, and, and he watched the life drain out of his friend and my daughter Jessie's eyes. Whoa. I mean, no one ever, ever imagines that they could go through a situation like that? I mean, I mean, sure, people can have nightmares, but no one ever thinks something like that is going to happen, no matter how difficult their circumstances. My sense would be you, too, were totally unprepared for any scenario like that. 
totally unprepared, David. There's no way to prepare. You know, you see that every day on TV and radio and magazine. We see it, but until it hits home, it's not real. It wasn't real for me. We're so um, desensitized, I think, towards violence until it happens in our life. And then, and I think we need to resensitize. And so when this happened in our world, it rocked our world and brought out the best in us, I guess, our, our deep love and our forgiveness and a new purpose, a new purpose to uh, end violence against women and shine light in the darkness and make this world a better place. Well, your story is, is inspiring for how you took a tragedy and have turned it into a powerful, what you call, project. But I think a lot of people are saying, you know, that was three and a half years ago. The wounds are still probably raw to some extent, but healing has been taking place. And one of the big questions that I'm sure many of my listeners have before we speak about some of the very positive things you're doing is just how did you and your wife actually handle this? Because a lot of marriages we know don't hold up under this kind of trauma? We have learned that 79% of marriages end when a child is lost. And uh, we didn't know that when it happened. And we sat on the couch in the living room the day it happened in between detective interviews. And, uh, you know, that was the beginning of the shock phase, which lasted for a long time because it was such a big shock. But Mm -hmm. Joy turned to me at one point and said, honey, we have to stick together because marriages break up over this. That was, wasn't on my radar. I didn't know that. Apparently she did. Mm-hmm. And she, we both knew she just spoke truth. And we said to each other that we would stick together. And I think that is one of the basic key elements to dealing in a healthy way with a tragedy like this is um, to not blame, to stick together, uh, to support each other. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that aspect of blame And maybe we can frame it just a little bit more broadly. Many of our listeners may have heard us speak on these topics before because historical trauma and and mistreatment of First Nation peoples is something that, that we address periodically on the show. But the point is, most of us, whether we realize it or not, have developed a pattern. It's really a defense mechanism of blaming victims. So... A lot of folks, if they haven't thought about this, they say, oh, I don't blame people that, that bad things happen to. No, we do it, and it's, it's protective. If I can blame you and your wife, Buck, for what happened, like, you know, they, they, were, they moved to the wrong neighborhood, or you know, they probably didn't have locks on their, their windows, or you know, whatever things I can do to blame you, then I can say, well, this could never happen to me because I would never do X, Y, and Z that you did. Are you following along? Is this something that that you've seen as you've looked into this whole topic? It's a fascinating insight, David. And in three and a half years, I've not heard it described that way as a protective mechanism. But Joy has basically intuitively known and said that for a long time. And yes, we have experienced some of that, although our community has been phenomenal. And I I really don't want to focus on that because we've had such an outpouring of love. But we have had some uh, blame like that. And, um, and the way you talk about it makes me understand it better, which is so important. Now I can understand a little bit better where it comes from. It's, it's the protective mechanism. Joy has said it in these words, that people need to um, kind of buffer their own fear and mm-hmm. feel like um, 
this can't this this would never happen to me and and so they have ways of putting some distance between uh what happened in their own life and, and I think that's a classic example. And so as you mentioned it, you know, the tendency in a relationship is for one party to blame the other. You know, it's something that, you know, if you had just, you know, didn't didn't work so many hours, if you had just been, and, and, I mean, it could be all kinds of ridiculous scenarios, but our mind goes through these gymnastics because we want to undo the terrible thing that happened. But as you pointed out, that doesn't help anybody. It just makes things worse, doesn't it? Well, you know, we know a friend, a, a patient of Joy's. Joy's also a chiropractor in the town we live in, and Oh, five years before we lost Jeff, um, this man lost his son in a tragic car accident, and his wife blamed him. Mm. And um, I think you're right on. A lot of the issues, you know, you can't live together with another human in a confined space for too long without conflicts arising. And, and the struggle and the challenge that I think we're all here for is to learn unconditional love by, by struggling with our conflicts and learning how to work through them and, and love each other well. And... Um, in this person's case, it, it, it didn't go well, and it ended in divorce. And I think that was good for us, looking back, because we saw that happen to a friend of ours before this happened to us. Mm. Um, but I, I think you're, you're right on target with something that's just fundamental to surviving a tragedy like this, is to focus on going forward, not to... Um, block out what happened or not deal with it. I, I also believe we need to be 100% fully present to all the pain and not hide from it in order to move through it. But at one of the key components to doing that well is not blaming your partner but sticking together. Well, we've got to come you know, back to this experiencing the pain concept. But before we, we hasten over this topic, a lot of folks, when we feature something that's not really a pleasant theme, the temptation for some is, well, to turn the dial, but really what the research shows, if we're looking at trauma, one of the things that actually protects us to some extent from the ravages of trauma is actually preparedness. Now, no one can prepare, like we said at the beginning of the show, for something this tragic, but just kind of having this dialogue, I believe what's happening, Buck, is you are sharing information right now that actually is healing. People may not want to listen to a topic like this. This maybe isn't their typical radio fair, but the point is just hearing about this and strategies that you can take if something terrible does happen to someone that's close to you, especially a child, you actually can not only survive this, but I think, as you've already alluded to, you can still thrive in the midst of it. You know, people will be tempted to turn the dial, just as people are, uh, many people in my life, it's difficult for them to talk about this. And um, I would encourage you to not turn the dial, because what's coming is a profound story of love and forgiveness that, by all the feedback we've been getting for three and a half years, is uh, kind of mind-blowing, and I think at the heart and soul of what it is to be human. So, Buck, this is probably the biggest question on people's minds right now. We've heard the stories of terrible tragedies, murders, just like you experienced, rape. And we hear about these people that forgive the person that perpetrated the crime. Some people just think this is unfathomable. And yet I hear you using the same terminology 
did you and your wife actually come to the point where you consciously forgave this neighbor who did this terrible act? Well, first of all, David, um, this would have been inconceivable for me three and a half years ago until it happened. Mm. And um, I still don't know how to talk about the... um, I I don't have adequate words for the blessing it was, the, the forgiveness that descended on us. And so, yes, both Joy and I have consciously forgiven Dan, um, but it came immediately and completely and unconditionally. It's not dependent on anything that he has said or done or failed to say or do. It's from us. It's our it's our gift to give, and it was given to me, I believe, um, from a higher place. I have no other explanation for how we immediately, on the, the third day after Jesse's murder, when we found out it was him sitting in the police station, found out he was in jail, um, we felt bad for him. And, and that in no way meant we didn't, uh, we had any disloyalty to Jesse and what he did to her, but we also felt that it was a tragedy for everybody, for him as well as her and her family, that he could do something like this. We couldn't imagine what happened to Dan, that he was capable of doing something like this, especially to a friend. And I can talk forever about this and forgiveness. It's what I live to do now. So please jump in and stop me anytime you need to. But um, I'd love to talk more about forgiveness and answer all your questions. Well, let's, first of all, frame this just a little bit more clearly. The way you've been speaking about Dan sounds like he was someone that was well-known to you as well as to your daughter. He was welcome in our home. They were friends for six years. They sat next to each other, first and second chair violin for six years in orchestra in middle school and high school. They were in all the musicals and plays together. Dan usually had the starring role. He was one of the few people in school smarter than Jesse. She admired his intellect, straight-A student, athlete, popular, no history of trouble. Nobody saw this coming. His parents, his fiance, his best friend, lifelong friend, or us. And so he was known to us, and he was welcome in our home. Well, I mean, this is just like a crazy scenario. This isn't the creepy guy that's wandering around the neighborhood. This is someone who you would say anyone would be comfortable having this guy in their house with their daughter. We would have said that um, before we heard the computer search evidence, and he became that creepy guy for us when we saw what he'd been hiding from the world for months and actually a few years. Wow. We've got to come back to this. We have to step away just for a few minutes. You don't want to go away. We're talking about things that can dramatically change your life. Buck Blodgett is not leaving. I am not going, and I encourage you to stay by as well. I'm Dr. David DeRose. You're listening to American Indian Living, and we will be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it. But it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and with Buck Blodgett. Buck is a chiropractor who went through one of the ultimate nightmares of losing his own daughter. It was a tragic murder perpetrated by a neighbor, a close friend, we were hearing some of the, the details of this. Sounds like an amazing guy, Dan, one of your neighbors, straight-A student, close friend of your daughter's, you mentioned, for six years. And yet you said there was something lurking in the shadows that nobody knew about. What was the telltale sign that later came out? Well, there was quite a bit of computer evidence that came out at trial. And, uh, for example, he had been searching serial killers, for a few months prior to when he killed Jeff, uh, he searched them by name, and he um, further searched those who had the highest number of kills, and he uh, uh, then searched their methods and actually attacked a woman in a park three days before he attacked Jeff using a completely different method from a different serial killer. Um, and there was a book that he had been writing for over two years that we know of, and um one of the main characters in that book was Jessica, and another character was a man named D, like Dan, apparently, who was a schizophrenic with an emerging dark personality, and on and on and on. Wow. So basically, this guy had somehow developed some fascination with these morbid uh, and, and worse than morbid topics, but no one saw any red flags at all. No one knew. No one saw it coming. He he, just apparently did develop a fascination. And, you know, I, I've come to believe, David, that um, this is in all of us. Dan's not a monster. He's, not, he's no different than me or you or any of us. I think we have this in us, this uh, potential for violence. But most of us um, make better choices and 
tame the beast within, uh, control it better, I think, and gravitate towards kindness and love, hopefully, as we grow in life. With him, he obviously um, let himself go down a tunnel and let himself go further and further and further and live this secret um, obsession until he acted it out. Well, we talked earlier in the show about how it is so easy to blame victims. And I think one of the, the scenarios that people would like to play out in a story like this when there's violence, intimate violence, is that, well, parents, elders should be more circumspect when it comes to who their kids or grandkids are keeping company with. But, hey, I mean, this is this is the opposite scenario. This is the model kid who anybody would want their daughter hanging out with, right? David, you talked earlier about protective mechanisms that we employ with blaming victims as an example, and this is one of them, I think. It's easy to blame a parent when there's a bad environment or at-risk environment that a child's in. Um, not the case here. And unfortunately, one of the hidden truths about violence against women is that it's often, it's usually more often than not, not every time, but more often than not, it's somebody you know. It's somebody who's close to the family. It's somebody in the family or a friend or someone in a position of power in school or work or the church, uh, corporate America. Um, very common. So um, one of the parts, one of the key parts, in my opinion, of solving this problem and shining light in the darkness is to learn the truth about it. And um, and you can't do that if you're blaming the victim and um, unfoundedly. No, I mean, these are these are great observations. And as people are listening to you, I mean, you're using terms, uh, whether you actually use these terms verbatim, but as we've been talking, I've heard references to a higher power. I've heard you speaking about, you just mentioned church in one context. You've spoken about forgiveness. I think anyone listening, they're picking up on these cues and they're saying, well, here is a person, he's probably a Christian or at least from some deep faith tradition so that he could forgive so quickly. Is that where you were coming from? Were you a, a devout religious person at the time of this tragedy? No, I was an atheist. <laughs> and I don't know if that's entirely true. I think I've been on a spiritual journey of sorts really my whole life looking back. I know I have, um, but I've always had and continue to have um, issues with organized re religion. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, some of the most Christian people that I know, unfortunately, not to be offensive here, but um, um, are, are the least living embodiment expressions of unconditional love and acceptance and of, of loving our enemy and of treating others like we want to be treated and of taking the, the plank out of our own eye before worrying about the speck in somebody else's eye and some of the other great spiritual teachings that we have in Christianity. Um, so no, I was an atheist when this happened to Jeff, but some things began to happen to me. And the, actually the next morning was the first odd butterfly event, I'll say, and, and then a series of about two dozen things that I can only call signs that happened to me over the next year that made me realize that there's more to this world than meets the eye, and I've been missing it for 53 years. Well, now, you can't just allude to these things, Buck. I mean, I know you can't go through all of them, but you've got us all on the edge of our seat. I mean, what kind of thing? I mean, you just lost your daughter. I mean, if that's not reason enough to throw the the whole, you know, religious thing out the window, here you see things happening that you call signs that there is 
a higher power or a God or however you want to label it. You got to tell us what some of those things were. <laughs> I'm sorry. First, I have to say that each one is about a 10-minute story to Whoa. share all the data that people need to know to get it the way that I got it. But basically, um, the, the morning after, uh, while Joy and I and a neighbor were at the bottom of our driveway um, filling Peggy in on what had happened the day before and why our driveway was full of squad cars and ambulances and um, crying and loving each other. Um, and a very odd thing to me that happened with the butterfly that caught my attention. And immediately being more of a, a, a doctor and a biologist and a scientist at heart, um, told myself, look, you just had a, I, I specifically remember thinking while this was going on with this butterfly, you've just had a fresh tragedy of a lifetime here. Don't make it mean anything. Well, later in the hotel room that night on my second sleepless night in a row at about 3 a.m., I found myself talking with a God that I didn't believe in and didn't believe existed and basically um, said, look, if you are real, I kind of need to know right now. <laughs> and um, I did a this instantaneous, timeless life review sort of and landed on an eighth grade talent show where Jessie played the first song she ever wrote that was my most proud and meaningful moment as her dad when she brought the house down. And uh, the name of that song was Butterflies. Huh. And... Uh, that was the beginning, and then it escalated to um, things like chimes going off, butterfly chimes that my brother had a four-inch monarch on them that my brother gave us that um, have sat in our house for three and a half years now and never gone off, but they went off um, uh, on New Year's Eve, which was a special time between me and Jess, and we had a light bulb that shattered in our bathroom when Joy was in there minutes before Dan, her killer, knocked on our door. The day after he killed her, he came over to our house for a vigil for about three hours and cried and shared stories with her. And um, that light bulb exploded a few minutes before he knocked on our door. And flickering street lamps when I um, walked and talked and asked Jess if she was my guardian angel. And then uh, it went further to um, what I believe are actual messages from Jesse that came through a friend and many other things that we don't have time to share about. Mm -hmm. But. Um, they're all in a book I wrote if people are interested in them, and they changed my worldview forever. Well, you've, like I said, you've definitely got our interest. Tell us the name of the book and how we can get it. The book is called A Message from Jesse, and it's on Amazon.com, and it's on Kindle. And people can order it through their local bookstore. If you just ask the bookstore for it, they can find it through... LSI. Every bookstore can order through LSI. So Amazon, Kindle, or through your local bookstore. A message from Jesse. It's the whole story. It's um, what happened in full detail. It's the dramatic trial and the criminal investigation and my spiritual journey and the birth of her legacy project, Love is Greater Than Hate. Wow, this is a, it's a moving story, and it's an amazing story of resiliency and really how I think you would say, basically, from talking with you, Buck, it's not you and your wife that have pulled yourselves through this, but you've seen a higher power, a creator, a God, whatever you want to label that being as having guided you and helped sustain you. Am I putting words in your mouth, or is that accurate? No, you nailed it on the head. That's exactly what I would say. I would say that you know, the other thing we said to each other on the couch that first day when Joy said we have to stick together, I also turned to her and said, 
we have to stay open. We cannot close down and get bitter and resentful because that'll kill us. And so I've tried, I've practiced every day at living life the last three and a half years with an open heart, an open mind, an open will, and open eyes. And, um, you know, I, I think every new moment in life is um, a chance, a, a success or a failure at connecting deeply with whatever this higher power is that we call um, God or the Great Spirit or the Spirit who moves in all things. There's a hundred different names, I think, and a lot of different traditions, but uh, there are days where I am so connected I can barely stand it, and it's really amazing. It's beautiful. It's I still feel crazy talking this way after losing my shining light in this life, Jesse, but it's with the pain and the reality of what's happened is a beautiful, deep peace that I never knew in life, too. We have got to come back to this. We've got to talk about the whole topic of forgiveness, especially when you as an individual, as a race, as a community have been mistreated, when you're the victim of violence. We've got more powerful lessons from Buck Blodgett. We have to step away just for a couple of minutes. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more on American Indian Living right after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live united. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. I'm speaking with Buck Blodgett. He's sharing his own moving story, his own tragic story, losing his only child, his daughter. And uh, some might say, well, if you had 20 kids, uh, well, you know, you lose one, you still got 19. Of course, that's missing the whole point. But uh, this is your only child, and, uh, and Jesse's now no longer with you. She was our whole life. Um, that's probably not healthy. That's probably not actually true, but she was obviously the centerpiece of our purpose in being here, both Joy and I. And, you know, it's one thing to lose a child. And uh, we started hearing from a lot of people who did after, and they gave us some good perspective. Um, but it's quite another thing to lose an only child. Mm-hmm. You still have your parental love, but you have no one, no nowhere to put it into. So I think one of the survival strategies, um, at least for me, that's worked so greatly is um, I've kind of replaced Jess with, uh, a, a new purpose in life, her legacy project, which we can talk about later if you want to. No, we're definitely going to go there. I, I think a lot of us, though, you know, our, our mind, my mind at least, is reeling because we're speaking about forgiveness. We're speaking about, you know, how you can forgive someone who commits one of the, the worst crimes that you can imagine. And then you and I were speaking at the break, and you mentioned someone who uh, we actually featured in our book. Many of our listeners know that we've got a new book out. I'm the co-author of a book called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. And we speak, actually, we have a chapter on spirituality where we speak about forgiveness. Let me just read a brief excerpt because it's right where, where you were going during the break. We want to bring everyone into our dialogue. This is actually a, a, a quote from someone speaking about Dylan Roof and the response of the the families to this terrible murder. Here's what he writes. Did you see the families of the shooting victims in Charleston, South Carolina, confront the accused killer at his bond hearing Friday? Did you see the video, them pleading with Dylan Roof through tears? They said they forgave him. The very soul who days earlier, police said, held the weight of the gun, pulled the trigger, and having seen the mess of blood spurting from one writhing victim, continued to another and another and another until nine lay dead on the seats and the floor of a Christian house of worship. What to me is the disconnect in these two stories, and I'm just going to be honest with you, Buck, is... As you read about what happened there in Charleston and the forgiveness of that community, people say, well, they were Christians, and forgiveness is this Christian virtue. Well, the case we were making in our book is that these virtues, are not, they're not just Christian virtues. They apply to everyone. So now you've got to either come to my defense or say, DeRose, you, you're, you're crazy because you told us you were an atheist, and somehow, as an atheist, you could forgive someone who just killed your daughter. How does this happen? My gosh, David, I, I, I wish. I've been answering that question for three and a half years, and I still don't have an adequate answer. But um, I feel like forgiveness is from a higher place. Hmm. I feel like it came to me and through me, not from me. Um, I feel like it's, it, there's something about it that's happening. It, there's something about it that's in the world right now. We keep seeing this pop up. It's not just the Dylan Roof case. It was Malcolm Astley who lost his daughter in breakup violence, forgave her boyfriend. And the, the man who um, lost his wife and two daughters in the Tennessee fire uh, a week or two ago, 
um, immediately wrote a letter to the teenagers who set the fire and forgave them. Mm. And there's a lot of examples of that in the last year or two. And, and like I said on the break with you, I don't know if it's just on my radar now or if there's actually this is an idea whose time has come and we're seeing the emergence of a new phenomenon globally with humans. I don't know. Um, but I know for me how life-changing and profound and powerful it's been. And I just feel blessed and in a crazy way. I feel like had we not had that forgiveness from the beginning, this we would have taken an entirely different path the last three and a half years, and it would not have been good. It wouldn't have felt good, and it wouldn't have turned out well. This is an amazing story, and it's an amazing response. And it's it's a response that a whole people have dealt with. I mean, I think of Native Americans who tune into this broadcast regularly, many of them, whether they're on a reservation listening to this show today, whether they're in an urban area, this history of trauma, whether it's the death of family members, of physical death, or whether you're talking about family members that went through atrocities during the boarding school era more recently, whether it's discrimination and totally inappropriate things that are taking place day in and day out in some communities, they're resonating with what you're talking about. And, and I think this whole aspect of forgiveness is part of the secret. It, has, it seems to me, Buck, from, from listening to your story, that this dimension of forgiveness is really what launched you into the project that you call the Love is Greater Than Hate Project. Am I sizing that up? It absolutely is, because we started to notice how people were reacting to our reaction to Dan and what he did. And to this day, I'm a little stunned by people's testimonials of the, the power of the impact it's had on their lives that we get by the hundreds, um, our forgiveness. And, you know, there's a few other important points about forgiveness. And one of them, I, I say it came to me from a higher place and through me and not from me, but I had to be open to it. I had to accept it. I had to seek it. I had to want it. I had to allow it. And um, I forget what part of the Bible tells us that we have access to him according to our faith. You know, the power of the blessings he can bestow on us is limited only my ability, by my ability to receive them, basically. Mm -hmm. And the other part of forgiveness, especially for your First Nation listeners, David, you know, now, thanks to social media, we in the United States, many of us finally know that we've written over 500 um, treaties with Native Americans and violated every single one of them, every one. And um, you talk about trauma. You talk about a, a lifetime and cultural legacy of trauma. And one of the important things for me about forgiveness is for people to understand, I am not... Forgiveness does not mean accepting or condoning or excusing behavior, past behavior. And it doesn't mean that I'm an advocate for leniency for Dan. I am not. Mm -hmm. I believe he has, there isn't a professional alive who could guarantee that he wouldn't do this again to somebody if he got out and had the chance. So I think he lost his chance to be free amongst us in this life. Yet that doesn't mean I can't love and forgive. Mm -hmm. So forgiveness is not excusing behavior. It may involve understanding it. No, no, I appreciate your points. And one of the contentions that, that one of the positions we actually took in the book, when we spoke in our book about forgiveness, is many people think forgiveness is just the decision the victim makes. But true forgiveness is only really 
efficacious if the perpetrator accepts that forgiveness. So there's a dimension to forgiveness that's always relational, and uh, it's one of the things that we can't choose. We can choose our response ourselves. But what you're doing is you're trying to make it so that other people value forgiveness and instead of retaliating when they're traumatized, realize that healing can take place in that context. Yeah, well, just look at, you know, what I did, David, one of the things I did early on was I just, um, I felt a compelling urge to um, fix what had happened. Of course, there was no fixing it. But if you look out into our world, what do we need more in this world than a little bit more love, a little bit more forgiveness, a little bit more tolerance and acceptance and openness towards each other? Of course, I will never succeed at this, but I want to try to live every day and become a little bit more like this guy who walked around on our planet 2,000 years ago and had a lot of smart things to say, this guy we call Jesus. And, um, you know, he tells us to love our enemies and he tells us to forgive. And um, that may seem nonsensical. And it, I think it is nonsensical. It's, it's not natural, but it's supernatural to me, and it's extraordinarily powerful. And I don't do it to heal myself. I don't believe that's true forgiveness, because I hear that a lot. You have to forgive to heal. Well, maybe so. I, I think it's the other way around. I think forgiveness is extraordinarily healing. But if you're doing it to heal, it's not really for the other. It's mm. for you. And we had a true forgiveness for Dan, and, and that's what's been so healing. Well, and I just have to interject because, you know, you continue to use this Christian language. You know, you mentioned the example of Jesus. But if I were to just meet you on the street and and ask you, are you a Christian, how would you answer that? I would say yes now because I feel like I owe that to him. But I also am a very unconventional Christian, to be honest. Um, I have a history of atheism and a little Buddhism and other things. I, I feel like I don't know if I should say this on your show, but I feel like there's there's something here. And we I don't so much believe in God as I feel him and mm. and invite him into my life. And I think there's various traditions around the world that have a different story and a different tradition and uh, belief structure that they've created around whatever this God is. And um, to me, it's all the same. And we can't, nobody has, in my opinion, no religion has um, the perfect interpretation of who God is and what he is. We, we're dogs trying to understand calculus. We're not capable of that. You know, I, I, German Shepherd might be a really smart dog, but he's never going to perform calculus. And I think a lot of us have God in a box. You know, we have our belief structure of who he is, but he's too big for a box. And um, I'm open to everything, and yet I also feel deeply touched by, for me, this this personal connection with who I call God and Jesus, who to me is really one and the same. I feel like he came into our world to show us that he's with us, and he knows what it's like to be here and to teach us. And uh, But I feel like he does that with everybody across this world, if you're open. Well, Buck, I know we'd have a lot of interesting dialogue if we had open lines, but I appreciate your uh, your faith walk, and it really resonates with me because 
I've been telling people for years, I mean, Jesus' message resonates with people if they just look at it just objectively, regardless of whether they're a Christian or not. And like you said, in Indian country, it's so obvious many of the people that have taken that name of Christian historically have been anything but uh, exemplifying the principles that Jesus lived. Listen, we've got to talk, though, before we step away for another break about your resources. Tell us again about the book that chronicles your whole story, and then tell us about your website. Uh, the name of the book, of Jesse's book, is called A Message from Jesse. People can find it on Amazon.com. If you've never ordered anything on Amazon, just go to Amazon.com and go to the search bar and put in A Message from Jesse, and the book will come right up. Um, they can also find it on Kindle or order it through their local bookstore. It's the whole story. It's my spiritual journey. And um, I think from what people say, it's life-changing for readers and profound. I feel like I didn't write it, actually. <laughs> wow, wow. Um, and we have a website people can visit. Um, we've done a lot of we, – we do three things in Jesse's Project, and one is media, like this radio show. We do TV and radio and print media and social media, and you can find much of it on our on our homepage, if you look at the toolbar on top, you can look at public awareness and see videos that we've done, things like that. The website is at L-I-G-T-H. That stands for Love is Greater Than Hate, L-I-G-T-H dot org. And we also have a Facebook page, and uh, you can search that on Facebook. It's just the Love is Greater Than Hate project, except it's the love greater than symbol it's just a greater than symbol the love greater than symbol hate project we got to step away just for a minute buck blodgett will be back for our final segment more about what you can do to bring healing into your community and into your own life i'm dr david derose we will be back with more don't go away today's broadcast has been pre-recorded however if you have questions about today's show or would like further information please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. 
I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. We've been speaking about a very sensitive topic, a topic that resonates, I know, with many of you who are regular listeners on American Indian Living. It does not matter whether you're of First Nation background or not. All of us can relate to tragedy, but I think in Indian country, especially are these topics moving and relevant as we speak about violence and injustice and sometimes crimes perpetrated by those who act like they are our friends. Buck, you've been sharing this really traumatic journey, and yet it is a story of hope and faith coming from the lips of someone who once described himself as an atheist. You put your energies, you shared with us earlier in the show, into something that you have called the Love is Greater Than Hate Project. Tell us a little bit about what that is and whether or not we can get involved with it. Sure. First, David, I would say that I think um, purpose is a really important piece of survival after something like this happens mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And um, Jessie, in life, was a, a girl of purpose. She had a many causes, and her last and greatest, ironically, was violence against women, and she tried to tell me about it. Wow. What happened to her, um, her project was born. So we have a dual mission. Our first mission is to end violence against women, and our second is to have people choose love over hate. Now, I know those are lofty, and I uh, wasn't born yesterday, and I don't expect to accomplish them tomorrow but I'll live the, the rest of my life trying. Well, you you have struck me, Buck. You know, you and I didn't have a chance to, to really visit before the show much. We were off air for a while before we actually started the, the recording, but I've just really appreciated your openness. You're sharing your journey. You're not coming at this as someone who's got some preconceived idea of how to fix the world, but you're in it with us because you understand even more deeply the human condition, don't you? I feel like I do after what happened. I understand my condition and my heart better. And I love what you just said, David. I believe we're all in this together. And, you know, those of us of different religions, those of us of different color, age, gender, beliefs, everything, we're all in this together. I think we're supposed to struggle and have conflicts with each other and learn learn about unconditional love through those things. So you have been speaking to audiences that are different than many have been speaking to when they deal with these topics. Many times these topics, these spiritual values of love and forgiveness are spoken about in religious settings. And it could be a a, a Buddhist temple as well as a, as a mosque or a, a Christian place of worship or a Jewish synagogue. I mean, it, it transcends those lines, but it often is in those religious trappings that we hear this dialogue. But you're speaking to people who may not be comfortable with that uh, uh, type of environment. 
how is your message resonating? What are you communicating where, where lights are going on and people are saying, you know, I've never heard this this way before? Well, I've done 51 presentations in the past two years since the trial was over and we could go public to about 7,500 people in all different venues in five different states and churches and conferences and high schools and universities and community groups. And it's, um, it's really amazing to me how universal the message appears to be and how people are so consistently impacted by it. It seems like everybody cares about this issue. And I think the reason is because it's everywhere. If there isn't a listener listening to us right now, I would bet, that doesn't know somebody who's been the victim of physical or sexual violence. And many of them, many of us don't know that we know somebody who's been such a victim because most of the time those victims, especially of sexual violence, never tell anybody. Mm. And that's the fundamental number one thing that has to change with this issue. We have to shine light in the darkness, bring it to the light of day, teach people, get the message out there that it's not their fault. There's nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be guilty about. It's not your fault. You were attacked. You know, we don't blame the bank teller for the robbery or the little old lady for the purse snatching. So, yeah, just very, it's a pervasive issue that affects so many. And I'm just, every time I go and speak somewhere, I'm surprised at how people are affected by what we're talking about. So if I want to get more information, I know one of the places you've shared with us that I can go is to your website. And uh, as I, I'll often jot down websites as my guest is sharing it with the listeners. And I'd be honest with you, I had a problem writing your website because it's the initials of the Love is Greater Than Hate Project or Love is Greater Than Hate. And uh, so it's love, L I. G-T-H, right? That's right. Many people's computers will auto-correct, and they'll change that to light. So you got to correct it back to L-I-G-T-H dot org. we got to do something about that. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened to me. I tried to, to put love is greater than hate, L-I-G-T-H, and my computer didn't like that, and it turned it into L-I-G-H-T. Yes. You can also spell out the love is greater than hate project dot com. Okay. So the love is greater than hate project dot com. What will happen if someone logs into that website? Well, they'll go to our homepage and they'll see what we do. And they'll see um, a lot of videos and uh, audios and a lot of testimonials from people in our community and how this project has impacted them. You know, David, depending on what study you believe, it's one out of five or one out of four or one out of three even. We really don't know because of reporting, a lack of reporting. But um, so many of our daughters and our sisters and our moms, our girls are being attacked. Mm. And it's not something that's been talked about through human history until right now. In this moment of time, in time, the last year or two, it's a national conversation for the first time ever. It's, it's an idea whose time has come. It's time for culture change. Now, as I'm listening to what you're sharing, and I'm, I'm listening about this project, I'm getting the impression, and it may be wrong, that this is mainly an educational project. You're trying to raise awareness. Is that a large portion of what you're trying to do? That's a big component, is raising awareness. That's where it has to start. You can't change the world unless you see it for what it is. But it goes beyond that. It goes to taking action. So one of the three main things we're doing now is um, we have a three-year first-step mission to measurably reduce violence against women in our county, Washington County, Wisconsin, in three years. 
and we've rallied community leaders. We had an event a month and a half ago where 52 community leaders came, state reps, mayors, principals, teachers, Washington County DA, Washington County Sheriff. And of those 52 leaders, 32 of them created seven new action teams and placed themselves on those seven teams. And there's an action team in the faith community and in legislative lobbying and in research and then in the schools and educating the educators and a few others also. So we're trying to involve our entire community to produce a measurable decrease in violence against women. When we succeed in three years, we will spend the rest of our lives perfecting the model and expanding it to neighboring states and then countries. So basically, if someone's listening today, maybe they're in New Mexico, they might be in California, they could be in Alaska. I mean, we have listeners throughout the the lower 48 and into Alaska and beyond. They're saying, hey, I'm nowhere close to Wisconsin. We do have a lot of listeners, by the way, in the the Great Lakes region in the Northern Plains. But some might make that might seem like a foreign country right now. Can they go on the website and get some practical ideas of things they could do in their community that could make a difference, or are you not rolling that out yet? We're not there yet, but they can go on the website and become aware, and they can visit Facebook and become aware. And probably the best thing to do right now is to read a message from Jesse and share it with people, because that's the best media we have for telling the whole story and raising awareness right now. And when people become aware of this issue, um, action naturally flows from that. You know, we talk about putting love in action, and the number one component of love in action is forgiveness. But it's also fixing structures and thinking, speaking, and behavior that bring about change. Well, we've been hearing from Buck Blodgett, those of you that have been listening from the top of the hour, he's been sharing the, the traumatic story of his daughter's rape and murder and how he and his wife have bounced back from that or, as you put it, been blessed in the midst of that, and you're now changing people's lives as we deal as a culture, as a world, as a society with these issues of violence. Your book, A Message from Jesse, if I got it right? Yes, thank you. And you know, if uh, you're a listener and you've never purchased on Amazon, it's very easy, and not only can you get A Message from Jesse as a print book, You can also get it on Kindle. Kindle, if you've not used it, you can read a Kindle book on a computer, on a smartphone, on a tablet. You don't need to have a Kindle device. So real easy to get it. So someone could be listening right now, literally, and download that book and be reading it by the time we go off the air. I mean, maybe not quite that quick, but not much longer. Am I right? Yeah, that's true. You've been a great guest, Buck. I appreciate so much you sharing from your heart. One last time, the website and uh, maybe a final message for our listeners. The website is org, And my final thought would be the first thing I thought, which is any act of violence of incomprehensible indifference to human suffering and, and the preciousness of life must be answered with an even more incomprehensible love and forgiveness. Tremendous message. Buck Blodgett, our guest on today's edition of American Indian Living. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.